How many of y'all are um, not good with names? Raise your hand. All right. If you're good with names, raise your hand. I can't stand you. All right. I am not good with names. You make me jealous. I have uh, had all kinds of people try to coach me in that area. They'll say, you know, if you're not good with names, then what you do when you're in a conversation, somebody introduces themselves to you, what you can do is say their name three times in the first minute or in the very first bit of the conversation, and that will help you remember their name. And it does. I have to admit that whenever I'm conscious and I do that, not that I'm unconscious when I'm talking to people, but whenever I'm consciously intending to, to memorize their names and get their name down, then that helps. It certainly does. Also, I, I even uh, heard somebody who t- had taken a Dell Carnegie class that if you'll, if you'll take their name and you'll, you'll be li- watching them and, and you'll somehow develop some word association, to, which is always scary, uh, but some kind of word association, and you don't necessarily tell them you know, what that word association is that helped you remember them, like maybe you're talking to somebody and their name is Ellie and you're looking at them, okay, and you're trying to remember Ellie, Ellie, okay, your, your ears look like elephant ears, you know, so I'm going to remember you by Ellie, elephant, and just don't call her elephant and I'm probably okay, you know, so whatever it is, you know, whatever it is to get that name locked in there, I have to admit though, it's not good advice, I've, I've done this a few times and so I speak from experience that I will remember somebody's name or face or or something from a past girlfriend, uh, and then just don't tell your present girlfriend uh, or your wife that that's how you remember their name because they will now see that person as a past girlfriend or something like that. Just a bit of advice there for you to think about. But names are important, and names represent character, and names in the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, think about somebody, though, in your life that, you know, you don't have a problem memorizing their name. Maybe he's a great teacher of yours. Maybe it was uh, a superhero growing up. I think I had my first uh, man crush on uh, Ed Tutal Jones, who used to be the defensive end uh, for the uh, for the Dallas Cowboys, and uh, so I that was my first man crush was on him. And it was just this: I wanted to be like Ed Tutal Jones. I wanted to play football like him. I wanted to be able to be that defense because I played defensive end. I wanted to be a defensive end like him. So what I did is I got every bit of information. This was like in the Stone Ages before the Internet. So I had to go to magazines. I had to do all kinds of sort uh, to get his information. But I got all his specs, all of his dimensions, and all of his diet. And I figured everything out about Ed Tutal Jones that I could so that hopefully I could become like Ed Tutal Jones. Well, see, the thing is, is that people who are of impact in our life, people who are of influence and truly make a difference in our life, we have no problem remembering their names. Their names are lodged in our lives. We remember them. If I was to ask you today, who was your favorite teacher in school? You could probably not name half of your teachers, but you could name that one teacher that made the difference in your life. You can visualize them. You can remember times with them. You can remember how they invested. They made an impact. Now, if I also ask you a question, who was the biggest bully in your school growing up? Who was the one that you couldn't stand? The person that just grated on you. You could probably name them as well. Why is it? They made an impact on your life. They influenced your life. So whether it's good influence or it's bad influence, We can tend to kind of lock in on those that
that make a big difference in our life. I want us to talk uh, today about names, and that's why we just want to know who we are today, in case you don't know who you are. Then, uh, then, but we also want to go further than that, and we want the devil to know who we are, all right? So we're not kind of doing this in kind of blasphemous kind of way, but you'll get where I'm going here in just a moment. There's some of the things as we kind of wrap up this message series today that I, I hope that we can take away after six or so messages in the series I hope that you'll take away, and I can't go back and repeat it at all, so just, just, but here's some things that I think you just got to take away. One is the adversary has a limited scope and authority and power in our life. He, he, okay, he's, he's not everything. He, he does tend to want to influence everything, but he's not everything. We, you don't find that he is omnipresent, that he can be everywhere at once, or that he's omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, or that he has, he's omniscient and he knows everything. He is not that. So we know this today, that he has limited abilities and scopes, and therefore he has to rely on his demonic forces to really know what's going on in this world. And so he's not divine. He'll never be divine. He cannot be defined. That's why it's not dualism of good versus evil so much as, uh, as it is that Satan is defeated, which leads me to the second point I really want you to take away. The adversary leads a defeated and broken kingdom. He leads a defeated and broken kingdom. It means his kingdom has fallen, though he may still rule the earth, though he may still be in every corner and crevice of this earth, and still be trying to manipulate this earth, he is, he's, he's broken, he's fallen, because his greatest aim is death. If he can get people to die in every area of their life, die in their relationships, die in their hopes, die in their integrity, and ultimately die in life, die in their spirits, die in their sin, if he can get them to, to just live in this death state, he wins. But... His kingdom is about death and darkness, and that is no longer. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's good news. That's the greatest news. That's how I can live in victory and live from victory and not live wondering where is victory or hope that victory may be mine. Is that His kingdom is broken. Now, here's another point, though. The adversary desires your life and soul. And just because he has lost, just because he is defeated, doesn't mean he's not going to fight for your loyalty. He's not going to fight for your love. In fact, Jesus warns Peter this, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, can you imagine what happened up and down the spine of Peter when, when Jesus says this, I want you to know that Satan has your number. He knows your name. He knows what you're about, he knows. He sees the direction in which I'm leading you to be the leader of my church in a very big way, starting a great movement that will sweep the earth. And he wants you. He demands you. He longs for you. And Jesus says at the end of this verse, and you can read it for yourself, he says, but I'm praying for you. Which is an awesome reality to think that 
God Almighty is praying for me. And I don't understand why would God pray when He's God. He doesn't need to pray. But He does. He's praying. He's interceding for us. So Satan knew Peter's name. But he didn't just know Peter's name. There's other times in Scripture where we know that Satan knew people's names. He knew Paul's name. He knew Job's name. He knew Job and Paul's name. He knew Peter's name. But does he know everybody's name? Take your Bibles. We find the book of Acts chapter 19. As we read this passage, we we read of a time in Paul's life when he's living in Ephesus. He's been there for three years. He's doing his work as a tent maker and also starting this church in Ephesus and leading the leaders of the church at Ephesus. And it's a, it's a great time. But he spends the longest amount of time Paul spent anywhere in any of his ministry was in Ephesus. And as a tent builder, you can imagine that he was constantly working, working hard, whether it's making the poles for the tents or it's making the canvases for the tents or whatever that he was about. There's some things that happen here that, you can just read it in the text. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's so far out there. But God somehow chose at this day, on this time, to do something through Paul that I can't explain, and I don't know anybody who can explain. But in the midst of this, there's a lot of demonic activity going on in Ephesus. Of course, they had temples there that worshipped sexual gods and temples there that worshipped different gods. And so it was a... It was a seedbed. It was a, it was a thriving place for demonic activity, open to all kinds of spirits out there. And this is what kind of Paul is living in. Well, there's a, a high priest there named Sceva, and he had seven sons. And, and they were watching all the miracle works that, that, that Paul was doing, and they wanted to get on it, in on it. And so they kind of took it up on themselves that they were going to start doing the exorcism uh, the exorcism activities that uh, to bring out people. And these, these were high priest's sons. And so they grew up in the, in the synagogue. They knew about the law. They knew about God. But there's no indication that they were followers of Jesus Christ. And so I want to kind of tell you, read this story just a little bit. And I want you to understand that the seven sons of Sceva, they didn't get it. They thought that Jesus was a ritual. They didn't realize Jesus was a relationship. And there's some of us in this room today who have reduced Jesus down to a ritual. And we don't know Him in a relationship kind of way. The ritual is every Sunday morning I'm up, every Sunday morning I come to church, every Sunday morning I stand and sit, bow, whatever. Whenever it's time I shake hands, when it's time to shake hands, I do the religious ritual thing, but I don't have a relationship. And the seven sons of Sceva, that's how they live. Pick up in the story with me in Acts 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. Now, I think that's an interesting combination of words. He could have said extraordinary things, and that would have been descriptive enough. He could have said he's doing miracles, and that would have been descriptive enough. But these were just not just miracles. These were extraordinary miracles. So these were miracles on top of a miracle. It's like this has never been done before. This has never happened since then. And now look at this by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Basically, the sweat rags that Paul was using were being taken away, laid on them, laid on sick people, laid on people with demons, and they were being healed. And again, 
I can't explain it. Even Luke, as he's writing this, living in the very generation and time in which this is happening, he says, this is extraordinary miracles. We can't even explain this. It just happened, okay? It's very unique, very, very, uh, very unique in what's going on. Now, verse 13. Then some of the... Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, it's the very first time the word exorcist is used in the New Testament, by the way, undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjourn you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now notice this. These Jewish unbelieving, they were not followers of Jesus, practicing exorcists, decided that, hey, they saw the power that Paul had and they wanted to invoke his name. Jesus' name, thinking that Jesus was some kind of incantation and that that was it. But Paul shows us he's not an incantation. He is an incarnate Son of God. He's a person. He's not a, a formula. He's not a saying. He's not a ritual. And so they try this kind of formula that maybe something like this would work. The seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them. This next statement, I, I love it. It's the key of the entire message. So here's what the evil spirit said. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Who are you? <laughs> the, the demons didn't even know who these seven sons of Sceva were. But hey, listen, I know who Jesus is. And he uses the Greek Greek word gnosko, which is the most intimate word, like a husband knowing a wife. We know intimately who Jesus is. We've experienced His power. We know that. And we recognize, we have this understanding of who Paul is. We've, his reputation precedes them. But who are you? Who are you that you can come up here and tell us what to do and that you can think you're going to step on the scene and some, through some incantation you're going to bring us out? And again, I think some people reduce Jesus down, reduce this relationship with Jesus down to some kind of ritual. That if I'll just go through some religious motions and say some kind of religious words, that Jesus will respond to me and all the demons of hell will flee from me. And the reality is that they may not even know who we are. Because we're not people of influence and impact. Why was it that they knew Paul? As we know, Paul was, he wrote most of the New Testament. Paul was a major player in, in spreading the gospel throughout Asia Minor, throughout even in taking the first one to take it into Europe. Paul was a powerful, impactful individual. They knew who Paul was. So my question to you today, does the devil know your name? Does the devil know your name? You say, well, I don't want the devil to know my name. Maybe if I didn't know my name, he won't bother me. Well, he's already got you at that point. I want the devil to know my name. Because I want the devil to know that I am a person of influence and impact. I want to be making such a difference in this world and such a difference in northwest Arkansas and such a difference in people's lives that they recognize my name when it comes up in their demonic meetings. That whenever they come to Mike McDaniel, they'll say, oh yes, we have got to pour on the power there. Because that person is a person of influence and impact. I don't want to be an incognito Christian any longer. 
I don't want to be somebody hidden from, 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 from the spiritual world. I want to be known because I am making an eternal impact in people's lives. You say, but it's so much easier to go this other route, and maybe it is a little easier. But is that what God called us to? Did God call us to a life of ease? Did He say, hey, whatever you do in, in this world, just make sure it's easy, comfortable, and tastes good, and smells good, and feels good? Absolutely not. You'll not find one verse in the Bible in that. Did He call us to a meaningful life? Did He call us to a full life? Absolutely. But it wasn't some hedonistic kind of self-indulgent kind of lifestyle. He called us to a life of impact and influence in this world. Does the devil know our name? So as you look at the, in this passage of Scripture, and you look beyond this passage of Scripture, you see what happens to people when they play around with Jesus as an incantation. Look at verse 16. And the man to whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, the seven sons of Sceva, and he mastered all of them. You talk about how powerful a demon can be. Seven strong, strapping young men are taken down by one demon. Overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's an embarrassment there. You just got whipped by one demon. Seven of you. What happens when we don't know, when Satan doesn't know our name? It's because he doesn't have to know our name. We're not a person of influence and power. And that also shows our own vulnerability that one demon can take down seven people. I don't want to live a weak-kneed life. I want to live a life of influence and impact that makes a difference in this world. Now, the evidences of that, I want to give you three of them. Because I want to look at Paul and I want to look at Job's life and real quickly just point out in three different situations. Take your Bibles, go back a few pages to chapter 16. We're going to look at a time when, when, when Paul is in Philippi. And this is what I want to say about this. Is that one of the evidences that he knows your name is when he will annoy you. When he pesters you and annoys you and is constantly nipping at your heels, then that he may just know your name. Because if you look at uh, chapter 16 and down in verse 16, this is what it says, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain, listen to this, through fortune telling. Divination, demonism, fortune telling. Demonism, fortune telling. They go together. You draw your own conclusions on that. Watch out for the tarot cards and all the other hoaxes out there. Verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become annoyed, returned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But you notice the fact of what happened there? Paul became annoyed. There's going to be times in our life that there for many days Satan will be nipping at us. I said weeks ago that Satan would love to oppress you. There are continuous days of oppression that come upon us. 
And if we are not careful, we get sucked into that and we become weak in that instead of strong in that. And, and the cracks are revealed in, uh, in us and we, and we just begin to fall apart. But we've got to realize that if we are walking with God and we are making impact and influence in this world, that Satan doesn't want us and he wants to defeat us. He wants to take us down. He wants to break us down. He wants to wear us out. He wants to distract us. Lori sent me a devotional clip out of Oswald Chambers during this series. And it's kind of lengthy, but I want to read it to you because I think it is powerful. It says this. It says, We have all had times on the mount when we have seen the things that God's standpoint and have wanted to stay there. Can't you imagine those times and God just working beautifully? But God will never allow us to stay there. The test of our spiritual life is in the power to descend. And if we have the power to rise only, something is wrong. It is a great thing to be on the mount with God. But a, but a man only gets there in order that afterwards he might get down among the devil-possessed and lift them up. We are not built for mountains and the dawns of aesthetic affinities. Those are for the moments of inspiration. That is all. We are built for the valley, for the ordinary stuff we are in. And, and that is where we have to prove our mettle. Spiritual selfishness always wants repeated moments on the mount. We feel we could talk like angels and live like angels if only we could stay on the mount. The times of exaltation are exceptional. They have their meaning in our life with God. But we must be aware, lest our spiritual selfishness wants to make them the only time. It's a deep thought. But the point is this, is that God didn't create us for this four-walled room. He created us to live in the reality of out there. In the tough, hard, difficult grit and grime of the world. And what we do when we come in here or we have this mountaintop experience or we go away to a men or, or a women's retreat, that we would just be in, in, in charged up so that we can go back and live among the devil possessed, and lift them up. See, life happens in the valleys. And we have got to learn, and as we walk with God as people of impact and influence, that we will live in the valleys much of our time. Discouraging times, difficult times, oppression times, times of, of great opposition. But it's when we're living in those opposition moments, in those seasons, those days where Satan is annoying us, that we can have tremendous and awesome victory. I shared with you in the beginning that I did not choose this series of my own accord. This series was kind of compelled and thrust on me just from the events that were going on in my own life. A season of annoying oppression that I felt and lessons that I was learning through that that I felt I needed to bring to our table to talk about here. And I have to say that in the past ten weeks probably, I have been climbing out of this oppression. And I'm not completely through, but I, it's beautiful to see what's happened. I started meeting with a group of about 12 guys on Monday morning for a study through experiencing God. And it's been amazing for me. Hopefully it's been decent for them, but it's been amazing for me. 
to go back and to just kind of revisit what it means to hear and obey God, to walk with Him through life. In this past week, there was an exercise in our book as we come to the close of the study. I was, it was asked to kind of go and list out the ways that God has been showing Himself to you through this study. And I began to weep as I wrote out how God has been my sustainer as God has upheld me by His right hand. He gave us a whole list of names of God and workings of God. And I just began to go through them. And one after another, first it was three, then it was four, then it was five. And the names just kept unfolding as God began to show that I have been this in your life over the past months. And you know what? That sent me back to the, to the mountaintop in my heart. It's a very meaningful moment. But you know what? I'm not made for that mountaintop. I know I'm going to go back into times. Satan is not going to want me to keep living for, for God. The challenges will be there. He's going to try to annoy me. The second time I know that Satan knows my name is he knows your name whenever he will seek to keep you silent. You know, one of the greatest blessings that we can give, and I, I, I don't talk enough about this, and I should repent of this. Because I know it scares a lot of people. But let me just lay it out there. I think in, in that fear, it's one of the works of Satan. One of the greatest works that you and I could be a part of and be in on in our worlds in which we live and the people in which we run with is that we could help somebody far from God come to faith in God. And you know people in your world and in your life and on your job and with your family that I don't know. And if you're waiting for me to bring them to faith in Christ, it'll never happen. But you have, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have the knowledge and the ability and the power of God within you to help bring someone to Jesus. But fear comes over us. I can't share. I get scared. I don't know what to say. All these things come on and He tries to silence us. When we begin to share, He will begin to try. Even the thought, He'll begin to try to silence us. We're in chapter 16. Go back a couple more chapters to chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 6. Another encounter that, that Paul has early on in his ministry. He's on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And, and he comes across... Yeah, uh, the Holy Spirit is working in Cyprus and so forth. In verse 5, it says, And when they arrived at Salamis, uh, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues and, the, and, and, the, uh, and of the Jews. And they, uh, and they had, and this is verse 13, in chapter 13, excuse me, uh, verse 6, And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was... Um, he was with the proconsul Ser Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and, and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, which is another name for Barjesus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them in seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, speaking to Bar-Jesus here, he is speaking, or Eliamus, 
He says, you son of the devil. Now, I wouldn't recommend saying that to a lot of people. It's not a great way to win friends and influence people. But he says, you enemy of all the righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the, the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see in the sun for a time. And immediately the mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I want to just read that just to show that again, as Paul is proclaiming Christ, Satan is working against him. Satan is trying to silence him. He is trying to cause the, the ear of the pro-council leader here. He's trying to call him to, to, to silence. He doesn't want him to hear the good news of Christ. John of the Cross said it like this, The devil fears a soul united with God as he does God himself. When we get about God's business, he fears us. He fears the work that we're about. So let me just say this to you guys and gals. When you share your faith, if you'll just enter into people's lives and enter into a conversation with them in a humble kind of way, humbly sharing your life, humbly sharing, not as if you know it all and have it all figured out. If you'll go into a conversation humbly with an unbeliever, you will win their respect. Then if you will go into it personally, personally sharing of your life, your own difficulties, your own setbacks, your own victories, how Christ has affected change in your life, how He has given you victory in your life. And you can tell your story of how your life before Christ, how you came to know Christ and the differences He's made in your life. Real simple. Share personally. And then share biblically. When it comes to the point of helping a person come to faith in Christ, show them from this book, not from your words, show them from this book how they can know Christ. I was recently sharing with someone through those very things in my mind. I need to humble yourself, Mike. You're your pastor. They're going to be intimidated. No, just humble yourself. Be real. Show them your own faults. Do it personally. Talk about your own struggles, ups and downs. And, but, but bring them back to Scriptures. And you know what? To be honest with you, I, I, I had to go and I had to find those Scriptures again. And I was, oh, yeah, 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 there's, there's this one. And I just showed them two or three verses of Scripture. And as that was unfolding, this person gave their life to Christ. That's not happened once. That's happened multiple times. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to lead someone to Christ. You just can be who you are, humbly, personally, sharing your faith, and then having a biblical source to that, and lives can be changed. I tell people this. Evangelism or outreach is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's all we're doing is we're just helping people who are hungry, because we're, we're a person who is hungry, find bread. But I'll tell you right now, Satan will want to silence you. He will want to silence you in your faith and in your life. But here's the beautiful thing. Look at verse 12 of this same chapter. What happens in this story as the, as the demon possessed by Jesus is blinded? You see something happen here with Sergius Paulus, and it says, Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I would have been astonished at the man going blind, I think. But you know what really overwhelms people? Is when we speak truth into their life. The greatest miracle is not seeing a, uh, a demon-possessed person delivered or, or seeing people healed from sweat rags. It's seeing and hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. Lived out humbly, 
personally in our life as we share it with them. There's another time that I know that the devil knows your name, and he knows your name, and you get as a test. Is when he wants to break you. When he wants to break you. If there's a statement I would encourage you to put somewhere in your notes or somewhere in your mind, is that the adversary's greatest tool is adversity. If he can cause your life to be ravaged with adversity, with difficulty, with troubles, with broken relationships, with broken promises, with brokenness. And if He can just cause adversity into your life, you will either again fall apart or become stronger through it. There's probably no better biblical example of this than the life of Job. You could turn there if you want. In fact, it's really easy. In Job chapter 1, it's right after the book of Psalms, or excuse me, right before the book of Psalms. And Job chapter 1, and you, you see this passage of Scripture. And I could only wish that verse 1 would be descriptive of me. And there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Who is this? This Job man. Was he perfect? No, but he was fearing God, loving God, serving God, walking with God. It was a beautiful picture. And there was born to this... Uh, born to him seven sons and three, uh, and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and, and fe- uh, 500 female donkeys and very many servants. I mean, this guy was a person of influence and impact. Satan wants people of influence and impact. And the very many servants, and so that th- this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and to hold a, a feast in the house. And, well, let's skip down to verse 6 now. Verse 6. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. And from walking up and down, again, we've talked about how Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he made his iron. So Satan's throughout the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my, my servant Job? So literally God says, you know about Job, don't you? That there is none like him on the earth. Blameless and upright man. God is proud of Job. Who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has in every side? And you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased it in the land. So basically what Satan is saying to God is he's saying, listen, you, yeah, Job loves you. You've blessed him. Yeah, Job loves you because you've given him so much. He really doesn't love you for you. He loves you for the things that you give him. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And if you know the story of Job, he loses it all. He becomes sick with boils. But he never loses his faith in God. 
I recently read through the book of Job and was amazed at all he went through. Now he had tremendous bouts of depression, tremendous struggles in his faith in trying to figure all this out and balance it all out. And then he has some lo- some loco friends over here on the side that's just feeding into that. And so it just, but he never loses his faith. He stays strong. And what I say to you today, and I don't have time to develop any of these passages at any length of time, is I want to say this to you today. If you decide you're going to speak out for Jesus, Satan is going to do everything he can to silence you. Put fear in your heart. Put doubt in your mind. If you decide today that you are going to walk with Jesus, he's going to do everything he can to break you, to cause you to fall apart, to pull the rug out from under you. He is going to annoy you to no end. He is going to oppress you if He can. If you decide to live for Jesus and be a person of impact and influence, it will not be an easy road. It will be difficult. But the beauty of it is is that as you live for Jesus and as you walk with Jesus, you can walk in the promise that you have the victory. Instead of giving your life over victoriously, excuse me, in failure to Satan, I love this verse, Romans 16:20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose? Under yours and my feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We can be victorious. He can try to break us and he can annoy us and he can try to silence us. But we can still be victorious. Irving Manis tells the story of his son going to to camp one day and and he was sending to a Christian camp so he knew that there wouldn't be ghost stories and all that kind of stuff at night. But his son comes home on the very first night he's scared. He said, what, what, what did you all do at night? He said, well, we talked about demons and Satan. They didn't talk about ghosts. They talked about demons and Satan. All right, well. So Irwin's struggling in his mind because his son didn't want to turn off the lights and wanted him to pray over him and all this kind of stuff. He said, I'll pray over you. He says, Daddy, would you pray that, you, that God will keep me safe? And this is not something I would have prayed, but I think I will now. He said, no, I'm not going to pray God will keep you safe. I'm going to pray that God will make you dangerous. I'm going to pray that God will make you so dangerous that when you come on the scene, Satan will have to flee. I'm going to pray that God will make you dangerous for him where you are influencing, impacting your little world around you. And his son yielded to that. He said, Daddy, pray that I'll be really dangerous then. You know, my prayer for you is not that God keep you safe. How many times do we pray for our mission teams? We just had 18 or so guys go over to Harrison. We want to pray for their safety. But we need to pray that we'll be dangerous in this world. You know, Friday St. Bob was here a few weeks ago. We were actually going to sing this last week, but it was appropriate even this week. He shared his life and all that, his life of growing up in spiritism, his life of growing up with a mother demon-possessed, the life of growing up and all of that and being the rightful heir to pray to the Mazimus all of his life from that point forward. But he chose to follow Christ. And I don't know if you picked it up because even Lori didn't hear it exactly. But in the past eight years, Friday has gone throughout the southern province of Zambia and has started 47 churches. And I think about that and I think, oh my gosh. In eight years, 47 churches. When he could have been living in fear, he could have been living in doubt, he could have been silenced. 
He's been starting churches. Riding on a bicycle 300 miles to various churches. Of course, he sang a song at the end of his sharing that he wrote that he put together as best he could. And we've asked some of our talented musicians to rewrite that in kind of an American version. Same words with an American tune to it. I want you to hear it, but I want you to respond to it today. I want you to respond to it this way. And this is our response time. You can come and kneel here at the front. If you say, you, you might be here today, you say, you know, Satan doesn't know my name. He doesn't know my name because I haven't been living for Christ. Or, or here, here's something even worse. Today, I don't even want you to focus so much on does Satan know my name. I want you to ask the question, does God know my name? Does God know my name? Because see, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that there's a Lamb's book of life. That everyone who knows Jesus, everyone who's a follower of Jesus, their name is written in it. And that there's going to be a day of accountability. One day in the end. And at the end of that day, and I don't know when it will be, nobody knows when it will be, but when it comes, there will be people who will be standing before God just longing to be with God and longing to be in heaven with Him. And He's going to say to some, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Does Satan know your name? More importantly, does God know your name? You have that kind of relationship with Him. And I think that's the message of Friday's song is I'll never be the same because Christ has changed me. Is that true of you? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for this time. We ask that You would know us. We ask that, Lord, You would cause all all the spiritual world around us, all the cosmic battle going on within and around us. Lord, would it be silenced? Would it be kept still so that You, Lord, You, Lord, would be the powerful one Though we move on from this series of messages, Lord, we don't move on from the atmosphere. Be still walking up and down, to and fro, north and south, east and west. Help us to be set free. That you would know our name, and that as we live for you, the demons would shudder.
I will never be 